0: The Sermon on the Mount is demanding. It is extremely demanding. We, we started with the Beatitudes in the last episode, and I introduced them as this kind of fortress. But if any, you know, now that the fortress has been, we've we've looked into the fortress, now we have like the rest of the fortress to explore. And this is what the Sermon on the Mount really seems like after this Beatitudes is kind of explicating what the Beatitudes actually looks like in practice. And it's extremely demanding. So what I want to introduce, Matthew 5, verse 13, um, we have these two images of salt and of light. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And it's a little bit weird in the Greek. It, it, there's kind of a pun there. You are the salt of the earth. And the image of salt obviously goes back to covenantal imagery that the uh, the Israelites were meant to be the salt all throughout the nations uh, to win. To those whom they are sent, but now the Christian is going to be uh, the salt of the earth, those of the covenant on earth, and the word in Greek is. But if the salt has become moronitha, and moronitha is where we get the word moron from, so <laughs> if the salt has become moronic, how shall it be salted? Uh, so if if you if you you know dole down Christianity to the point that it it doesn't have its taste, then you're just It's good for nothing except to be thrown out and trodden underfoot by men. That's pretty demanding. (laughs) You know, if our Christianity has lost its, has become foolish Moranifei, then it's good for nothing but to be thrown out, excuse me, and be trodden underfoot by men. Okay, we have the second image. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Whoa, 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 whoa. Father who is in heaven. I could be wrong, but I think this is one of the first places we see this phrase, your Father who is in heaven. And I would like to propose that this provides the interpretive key. If, If God is really our Father in heaven, Right, And and we're going to see this theme all throughout Matthew's gospel, obviously all throughout all the gospels. But if God is really our father and we really are his children and his, his sons and his daughters, then when he sends the spirit into our hearts and he, we breathe in the divine life, then he basically gives us the grace that we need to live out the new law of the new covenant. For another image for this, we're going to move to Matthew 9 very briefly. In Matthew 9 verse 16, we say, Christ says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So we have this image of like the new wine of the new covenant, Christ's own life and making us sons and daughters allows us to live out the extremely demanding parts of the new law. I mean, Matthew 5, like I mentioned Luther's interpretation of Matthew 5 last time, Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, which is basically what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is basically showing us you can't live even half of what you're supposed to live. And because of that, all you need to do is just trust me in faith and you'll always mess up. And so you don't need to even strive for living out the Beatitudes because, well, you're just going to be crushed by your sinfulness anyways. No, we, we cannot take that interpretation. The interpretation here would be what well, the Sermon on the Mount shows is what the Christian can be. If we really are sons and daughters of God and we're striving after holiness, we actually can be poor in spirit, meek, hunger and thirst for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, like all of these things we can actually accomplish. So in verse 17 we have think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, I've come not to abolish them but to fulfill them. So the idea here is that uh the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Let, let's go to one of those prophecies, probably one of the most important. Jeremiah 31. So easy to remember Jeremiah 31 verse 31. Jeremiah says, behold the days are coming says the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people." No longer shall each man teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This this is the new covenant. The idea is the law was always this kind of external thing. And Paul will talk about this a lot in Romans and Galatians. Paul will talk about the letter that kills, the scripture that kills even. It's in the in the Greek. And the idea is if the law always remains this external thing and it doesn't become internalized, if the law becomes you're just obeying God because he says so, um, then you're always going to be looking for benefits for yourself. But if God gives his spirit and and basically writes the law on, on our hearts by giving us the spirit and allowing us to be participating in the church in his own divine life, then This is the new covenant. This is the new testament. We become God's people. Uh, No longer shall each man teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, "Know the Lord," for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Oh, it's staggering. There's so much more. (laughs) There's so much more we could say on this, and I just wanted to introduce this theme of the dynamism of old and new, and really that the Christian represents a new creation in in a like a, a real way, we really need to take a kind of realism regarding this, that the Christian is not um, in continuity with his past self as much as he is in discontinuity with this new creation that he actually participates in. So let's get to some of the, uh, you have heard it was said of uh, to men of old. So now we have, I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill, and here is how he's going to fulfill it. A lot of it is internalizing what the law externally commands. So the first thing is, you have heard that it was said of men of old, you shall not kill, and whoever kills shall be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother shall be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool shall be liable to the hell of fire. So a few things to note here. Everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. So before it was, if you kill, you're liable to judgment. But now, because God's spirit is in you, Um, and he knows all your ways. If you're angry with your brother, you're liable to judgment. And then the word in in Greek is whoever calls his brother Raka uh, shall be liable to the council. And the council is in the Greek is Sanhedrin. So I'm pretty sure there's this image of the church being offered there. And whoever says Moronethe, so you fool, shall be liable to the Gehenna of fire. Wow. Okay. This is pretty intense. So, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, notice here, it's not if you have some like internal anger that you need to get rid of. You know, it's if your brother has something against you, you need to leave your gift there at the altar. So, you know, uh, Vladimir Soloviev, one of my favorite philosophers and theologians he uh he outlines how the east and the west had split from each other and that their sacrifices they were offering to god were ineffective because they both had evils against each other the east and the west and it's only when they reconcile with each other that they'll be the two lungs once again on which the the church will breathe east and west greek and roman but uh, the idea here is like it's it's amazing it's not you know if you have a brother that has something against you you need to go be reconciled you know this this um it's just a great image. It's not if you're harboring anger, it's if someone's harboring anger against you, go be reconciled. That there's this primacy of being reconciled before offering your gift, that you can't offer your gift and have your brother say something against you or have something against you. All right, let's continue. Verse 27, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into Gehenna. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into Gehenna. This is this is this is part of that, you know, intensity. I mean, you can see why Luther's interpretation is uh is appealing because man is this difficult, right? I mean, this internalization of the law, okay, Put it this way, Luther's right in this regard. If Christ is is basically saying you need to internalize the law to such an extent, you know, I'm gonna write my law in your heart, if he doesn't give us the grace and he doesn't give us the ability to actually do that, if he doesn't communicate his divine life to us that then allows us to participate in the new law, then it really is the letter that kills. I mean, this is so um you know adultery being one of the worst sins but Jesus is saying if you've even look at a woman lustfully you've committed adultery with her in your heart i mean that's that's intense i mean that's, um and if your right eye causes you to sin pluck it out and throw it away if your right hand causes you to sin cut it off and throw it away uh it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body go into gehenna so this intense internalization of the law is what we're what we're seeing here and also, we should notice with Matthew here, he uses these what, what you could call kind of a Hebraic or rabbinic or whatever type of hyperbole. So obviously, he's not telling you to take your right eye out and, you know, throw it away or cut off your right hand. Um, you know, Origen took this too far, right? Later on, we have those who have been made eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom, and he actually castrated himself and the early church really, you know did not appreciate that. If you want to be a priest, you shouldn't just mutilate yourself. Um, but it's part of these Hebraic sayings where there's this Hebraic hyperbole in order to illustrate a point that it would be better, you know, you don't want your whole body to go into punishment just because your right hand causes you to sin. You know, remove those things that are causing you to sin from your life. Verse 31, it was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for uh, unchastity makes her an adulteress, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So more on this in my Matthew 19 commentary that is uh, below where the Pharisees asked this question. Also something else, I've, I'm have i finding more and more in Matthew, coming back to Matthew, that he sets up things and then has them come back in his story in a really significant way Um so, I mean, here concerning divorce and remarriage, it comes back, uh, the saying about, I mean, there's just so much. So I, I, I love when Matthew connects two points and shows how their early fulfillment, later fulfillment. Anyways, just a <laughs> small brief, um, excursus. Okay. Verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to men of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord, what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not swear at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not even swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more comes from the evil one. Okay. So utter truthfulness in all things. I mean, that's very intense, right? And also this isn't, uh, you know, this isn't, to be taken like the Seventh-day Adventist, I'm pretty sure they they do this type of thing. Or um, I think the Mormons maybe as well. The idea that they don't take oaths. Yeah. Once again, he's using this idea, do not swear at all by heaven for the throne of God or by earth for just his footstool or by Jerusalem. Just make your yes be yes and your no be no. Um, this, isn't, this is once again that type of hyperbole. He's not doing away with oaths. Um, the Later on in Matthew's Gospel, we'll see where the Sanhedrin and the high priest actually adjures Christ by an oath, and he answers what they say. So oaths are still important, but what he's saying is utter truthfulness. You've heard that it was said, "An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth," but I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your uh, your coat, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to him who begs from you, and do not refuse him who would borrow from you. So the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth was, it's not recommending personal vengeance. That would be totally misunderstanding the point. Um, Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth was kind of a principle in order to, you know, basically, if you're a judge, you're not going to, if someone, you know, tears out someone else's eye or whatever, you're not going to just shoot them you know it's it's a, just a principle of equality regarding retribution but i say to you do not resist one who is evil if anyone strikes you on the right cheek turn to him the other also um <laughs> peter Craves' interpretation If anyone strikes you on the right cheek turn to him the other also it doesn't mean you you moon him take down your pants uh no it's it's meant to it's meant to humble uh so meant to humble how should i put this in doing that if you don't resist those who are evil this is not a recommendation for a kind of Gandhi detached secular nonviolence. That would be mistaking the point massively. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turning to him the other also is meant to say, whatever you're doing to hurt me can't actually hurt me. And it's you don't retaliate kind by kind. So, you know when when Peter takes out his sword and he says, "Put your sword in your your, your scabbard, for those who take by the sword shall die by the sword. It's basically an in, an injunction upon Peter to uh, not retaliate in kind. And turning the right cheek, turning the other to him is basically demonstrating his evil to his face. It's kind of like, okay, you've smacked me. It didn't actually hurt me. And here's my other one. And if anyone would sue you to take your coat, let him have your cloak as well. It's a kind of detachment from material things that if you're going to take From me unjustly, go ahead, take all of it, because this isn't what really matters to me. Ultimately, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. So, this was Roman military service that the Roman soldiers could force you into some type of service. So, they force you to go one mile, go with him two miles, give to him who begs from you, and do not refuse him who would borrow from you. This kind of utter detachment from material things and also from uh, hurts upon the body to where you can take evils against you. And uh, in prudence, I mean, obviously justice needs to be done uh, prudentially, but it's this kind of principle, you've heard it said, you need to you know, give this kind of justice retribution stuff, but I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. If he, <laughs> this isn't, you shouldn't resist evil if you, you know, basically the Christian can endure all things as Paul talks about, even having evil done to him. You've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy but I say to you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Okay. This is <laughs> this is intense, right? Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. If you remember my previous episode on the good samaritan, you know who is my neighbor. This I think in Matthew 5 gets to it. Loving your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you go to the acts of the apostles like Saint Stephen saying Father, do not hold this sin against them. Or Jesus saying on the cross, "Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do." Um, praying for one's enemies is one of those ways where you're you're basically transcending the violence of this world and the evil of this world by praying for your enemies. That the idea is that God can save even them and bring them to repentance. You know, the early church fathers said about Stephen's martyrdom that Saint Stephen was uh, stoned to death in the Acts of the Apostles. And St. Paul was there. He was the one who hosted the stoning of, of Stephen. And the father said that the prayer of Stephen to not hold this sin against them was the grace given to St. Paul for his conversion. Pretty amazing stuff. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes His son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you salute only your brethren, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, we have it there again. Perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect, and if he really is the heavenly Father, then he's going to provide for his children, and and this is what you know is explicated in. Um, in Matthew 6 to a large degree that the our father prayer concerning fasting concerning treasures serving two masters you know and and finally in Matthew 6 do not be anxious about your life what you shall eat or what you shall drink nor about your body i mean it's it's because you have your father in heaven so this this episode i i actually like recorded this re-recorded it about two or three times because we're getting into stuff that Like in Matthew 5, it's not just kind of a theory that I can kind of like spin together with Lazarus, or it's not a a story that I can tell you like, here's a particular interpretation. But I I feel as though this, that this is extremely important that we're starting to feel this tension of old and new, new covenant. And also one point I want to draw out is that this new law is totally unintelligible unless you have a people who's actually living this new law that unless Christ has given his spirit into the hearts of believers and they can understand what this internalization of not being angry, not being lustful, not being, um, not lying in any respect, right? Not even retaliating, loving your enemies, that if the heavenly father doesn't give his sons and daughters his spirit in order for them to do this, then this becomes the letter that kills. Then you take Luther's interpretation of these things and they become, not only do they become unintelligible, but... but they become unintelligible and crushing they're really crushing when you when you realize we really can't live up to this um what christ is saying here and what what i think yeah what i think he's saying is this is actually possible and uh as crushing as it may seem it's actually extremely hopeful so that's gonna wrap it up for this one and i'll see you in the next one